I want to add my welcome to the one that uh, Sandy has already given. I see Steve going frantically up there. Am I big in the room, mate? Yeah. Yeah, you want me to whisper? No, no, I won't do that. Great to have you here. Good to see that the faces that are in here, in here. And we know that uh, a lot of you are still at home. It's awesome that we have the medium to be able to uh, get our services into homes uh, here in Chelsea and Frankston and various other places uh, that we're at. But I like what Sam said last week when Sam said, there's some normals that we can get back to. There's some things that we can return to. And church is actually one of those normals that, that we can go back to that was, you know, there's a few little things that aren't the same. The chairs aren't in the same spots, and and we have to it's like wear masks until tonight. But the purpose of church is still the same: to gather the saints together, that we might uh, bear witness to the goodness and the grace of God in our lives. That we might bear each other, uh, you know, nurture each other up into maturity in Christ. So it's hard to do that at home. Uh, so we're just encouraging uh, people uh, as you feel comfortable uh, and you know and, and safe and that to come on in. We are looking forward to seeing you here. And if you've uh, just come to No Freeway uh, through online, you've never actually been in this building. Uh, we would be super excited uh, to see you and to hear your story and just to plug you into the family here. Hey, why don't we pray? I'm going to pray and then we're going to get into this psalm. And at the end of our message today, I'm just going to go straight into communion. So the people in the building here have got these nifty little communion cups and wafers. And if you're at home and weren't aware, didn't know, just run into the kitchen, grab a loaf of bread and a juice out of the fridge, and then come back. And at the end of this message, we're just going to slide uh, straight into communion. Hey, let's pray. Hey, loving Father, uh, our God, as we turn our hearts and our minds to your word this morning, uh, would your spirit just illuminate to us the truth uh, that is there, that it would hold us in place, that it would shape how we live in this world in ways that give us this unshakable uh, confidence of our heart uh, from abiding in you, from, from dwelling in the knowledge of who you are and experiencing that in our lives, that we would seek you, that we would find refuge in you. And there, in doing so, find this fortress that this psalm uh, speaks of. Find this protection, uh, this covering, this salvation of our souls. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, for the last three years, this is the third year that we've been doing this. We've been starting uh, the year off in the Psalms. Psalms are a great little book. They're a little different to other books. They're, they're kind of, their composition is that they're written by human authors, and they're written about how they understand God in light of his revelation, in light of other scriptures, in light of what we have about him, how they understand him uh, you know, in the human experience. And it's out of the human experience that a lot of these Psalms emerge. And there's a, uh, a preaching professor uh, over in the States, his name's Bob Vogel, uh, and he says this, that the Psalms do more than express human passions and thought. They are the place where, where that passion, uh, that engagement in life, and the grace of God intersect. That's what's been written down here. Psalms represent theology at work in real life, and they enable later readers to use them in, in the same or similar contexts or situations as they arrive. The Psalms kind of describe the faithful attributes of God that have been sort of universal principles, if you like, universal truths for believers throughout history. And they, they encourage current readers not just to, to know about these, uh, these uh, truths about God, but to invite them into their life situation. As they, as they read the Psalm and as the Psalm resonates with where they're at, 
They invite these things into their life situations and they trust in them till they give way to praise in their lives. You ever notice that about the Psalms? There's something going on. Who knows what it is? Bad, good. They work their way through it and, and then they, re, they remind themselves about the goodness of God and then all of a sudden praise comes bursting forth out of the psalmist. The Psalms were the songs and the prayers of faith that Jesus, and I loved uh, the way Josh brought that out last week, but they were the songs and the praise of Jesus and the early church. What they, what they turned to uh, to fortify their hearts with what they knew to be true about God as it intersected uh, with their experience of life. You know, Jesus, during his life in particular, uh, in particular in his last week, he turned to and quoted the Psalms uh, several times uh, there in his last week. Jesus, Jesus uses these Psalms to express the anguish of his soul, what's going on in his life, but then also uh, his confidence in God. We see that on the cross where, you know, Jesus, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting Psalm 22 and then into my head. Hands, I commit my into your hands. I commit my spirit. He's, he's quoting Psalm 31, a psalm of refuge and deep trust in the goodness of God. And as Josh pointed out last week, it only took for Jesus just to drop one line from a psalm, and then the whole truth picture of that psalm uh, would, would 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 become the reality for the listed. Would help them kind of understand what was going on, interpret what is going on, deal with what is going on. And the apostles used the psalms themselves to make sense of Jesus and, and what he went through and what his death and his resurrection meant for the early church. And the early church would turn themselves to the Psalms uh, when, when they encountered persecution. We, we read that in uh, Acts 4, uh, the, the persecution into the church. And it's like, why do the Gentiles rage and plot in vain? They're, they're praying Psalm 2. And they sang that song and they prayed that prayer uh, with, with the, in their hearts until their hearts were actually comforted by that Psalm. And then what happens? Out goes the church, and it continued to speak the word of God in boldness. The Psalms come, and they, and they help us understand life, and then to do life in, uh, under the understanding of the nature and the character of God. And if Jesus and the early church soaked their prayer life uh, in the Psalms, uh, these were the songs of their hearts, then I think it's not a bad idea, and that's why we've got into the rhythm every year to do Likewise, so at the start of each year, we just spend a little bit of time taking in the wisdom and the worship of the Psalms so that their truth can comfort our hearts like it did uh, for Israel, like it did for Jesus, like it did for the apostles and the early church. So as we start this new year, we, we kind of call on the Psalms to help shape our approach to the year, to help shape our worship, to help shape our response to the situations uh, that we find ourselves in. And I was thinking about this because as we start the year, there's just been a lot of, a lot of people, a lot of hype and a lot of positivity and a lot of nurtured optimism as people kind of come out of last year and move into this year. Now, I don't want to take the air out of the tires of those people. That's, that's good. But kind of resting underneath all that nurtured optimism, I can't think of a year in my memory that has actually started with more uncertainty 
with what's going on. Started with more anxiety. It uh, started with more fear around our safety, around, around plans about what we can and can't do. Can, can, can we or will we get an effective vaccine you know, out into the community uh, before another, another outbreak, another wave uh, happens? What, what's going to happen uh, when JobKeeper and, and JobSeeker are rolled back? What, what, what kind of impacts that going to have on our, on our society? Will businesses survive? Will, will people have jobs? Should I book a holiday? Should I, should I go try and think about going somewhere and knowing that our friend Daniel Andrews could change the traffic lights at any time and something would go green or red or orange? Uh, who knows what's going to happen? And then as we wonder about these things here. We, we wonder about what's going on overseas. I've never seen so much interest in, in, in an American election before. We wonder what's going to happen over there. What, what's that going to mean for us? Spend five seconds on YouTube and it's the end of the world, uh, no matter what side of the fence you sit on. And then, if you can believe it, we just have pigeons rolling up on us, just coming into our state here, threatening our biosecurity and our, and our natural wildlife. Like, it's, it's, it's a little off the chain. Despite how happy we are to see the end of 2020, we roll into 2021 with a lot more uncertainty than we have in previous years. Having experienced and lived through perhaps one of the most challenging and, and hardest years, we, we now still face another year of, of challenges, of ongoing uncertainties. But, but this year, we know the threat to our comfort, the threat to, to our security is real. Like we kind of thought maybe something could come along, but now we know it can and, and this year, we know that we are not in control of the universe. This year, we know anything can be taken from us and that, and, and that to some degrees, we are powerless to stop it. So what comforts the soul when we know we're not in control? What, what keeps the anxiety and the fear from becoming the controlling idea that, that masters our hearts and our minds and, and how we live? How do we rest and have peace in, in, in uncertain, threatening environments? Well, this is Psalm 91. This, this psalm is a reflective prayer written by an author who himself has personally experienced uh, the faithful and loving protection of God in his life through times like this. And now he's written down this psalm and this psalm is sung to uh, other audiences who themselves are facing uncertain times, whether it's war, whether it's famine, whatever it is, that, that they would gather together and they would sing this psalm to encourage them to bring the troubles and difficulties of life to God and to trust in him for care, protection, comfort and, and salvation of our souls. Now there's a line of thought that this psalm is, is the one psalm in the psalms that Moses actually composed. Uh, and the Septuagint, the, the, the credits King David with being the author of this psalm. But, but both men knew uh, what it meant um, to let go of, 
of, of being in control, of being in command of life, and then to take refuge in God, to let go of their own strengths and abilities and their own assets, and then to go and to take refuge in God and find in there a greater rest, a greater place to dwell, a, a better place to make a home, if you like, and to shelter in God. Both men knew what it was to say, The Lord is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And both men encountered and experienced that reality through years of adversity and threats and dangers and uncertainties. And, and, how, and how in dwelling and how in clinging to God in the face of it all, actually fills the soul with rest and assurance of salvation. The confidence to know that these things will not uh, be overtake you. That though there is uncertainty and danger and evil in the world, it will not have the last word on how we experience life. Or what shapes the approach of your heart to circumstances and environment. What shapes the approach of your heart to 2021? The psalmist is like, how, how, could it, how could circumstances and events shape our heart when, when we understand the power and the majesty of God who, who makes uh, his promises complete, who brings his protection into our lives? When we understand who this God is, that's what should shape our lives. That's the universal truth, if you like, or principle that this psalm hinges on, not environments, not circumstances that shape our, our response to life's circumstances. The, the psalmist deploys four separate titles for God right at the top of this psalm. Um, and, and in the opening two lines, to invoke confidence in, in the reader, and they convey the power of God who is king over all of his creation. A God of enduring covenantal love who, who personally... So this is this powerful God that we sang about. And then, and then this personal and intimate God that we also sang about in Still who approaches us personally and, and rescues his people. This is the God that's being described in, in these first few lines. You know, uh, those who dwelt are in the, in the Most High, that's Elion, that's, that's, that's God, King, Sovereign, the fine uh, rest in the shadow of the Almighty, Shaddai. And I will say of the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh who revealed himself personally to, to Moses, and I will take fortress in God, Elohim. That's, uh, that's the God who lives, the God who's in relationship with us. The psalmist does not hold back the big idea of the psalm. He's not slowly building the plot to some kind of big reveal uh, somewhere along the line. Right out of the gate, the psalmist can, can, before he gets to describing any of the dramas that life holds, he drives home or drives into the ground the reality that controls his praise, that controls the song of his heart, that speaks into the dangers that are mentioned through this psalm. And that is this, that you are safe, that your soul is safe. And that safety is based in the goodness and the greatness and the glory of God. So as you size up threats, as you size up danger, as you size up the year ahead, size those things up against the name of God, how he has revealed himself to you, uh, the God who stands over uh, the years and who stands with uh, those who encounter them. 
Then the psalmist deploys four metaphors to describe how one's trust in this God is experienced. It's experienced in in the form of shelter. Uh, you dwell in, uh, like a home, like going into to a, a safe environment and a home. Um, it, 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 it's like the covering of a shadow in an arid desert. You just find relief and rest there. Uh, these are caring and intimate pictures of this God. Then there's these other two metaphors that are used, that God is a refuge and God is a fortress. And these images convey uh, the military images of strongholds and power and strength. These metaphors are picked up again in verse 4 where God is depicted like a, a mother bird who shelters her young under the shadow of her wings. Uh, this divine protection is like a shield, something that you would, you would hide behind and a rampart, something that you use to advance in, into the environment. Again, it's pictures of intimacy and, and pictures of strength. The imagery of, of God as a mother bird, which is, is the kind of the extended metaphor in this psalm, is quite common uh, throughout Scripture. Israel is described as being rescued on eagles' wings. Uh, we read that in Exodus 9.4. In the book of Ruth, Boaz describes Ruth's faith story as taking refuge under the wings of the God of Israel. Psalm 36 says that the children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings, in the shadow of God's wings. And Psalm 57 says, uh, the psalmist says that his soul takes refuge in the shadow of your wings. God is often depicted as this protective uh, mother bird who, who, who covers her her young with her wings. This description of powerful and personal, personal and intimate care and protection is, is, is enjoyed by those who see God as trustworthy, as a trustworthy place to take refuge, as a more secure place of protection than the natural places of refuge that we, that we would like to normally run to and take refuge in. Places like our reputation or, or, or our own goodness or sense of morality or our health you know or our medical advances our achievements our relationships our kids our marriage our sexuality we all build these self-made places of refuge that, that, that our hearts try and cling to but they are only capable of offering very fragile very finite very limited and counterfeit places of refuge and our choosing them over what God is inviting us into, what God is offering us to, actually positions us outside of the kind of care, the kind of comfort that's being described here. The psalmist is actually inviting us from these to backing toward God. God's protection is not merely some automatic rule of the universe applied to card-carrying uh, you know, Christians. It's an invitation. It's encountered relationally. It's, it's something that we nurture. It's something that we cultivate in our souls. And as we do and as we participate in that and as we call on the name of God, then we encounter it. Then we experience it. Now, this is borne out in the bookends of this psalm because the psalmist starts with an invitation. He says, whoever comes, whoever comes and dwells and lives and operates in the shadow and the shelter yeah, and then his own personal commitment. He says, I will, I will say of the Lord, I'm going to do. This is active. This is, this is approach of the heart. 
And then at the end of the psalm, God himself speaks. This is God speaking in verses 14 to 16. And he reveals that he's promised rescue uh, to deliver those that are in trouble. His deliverance and his salvation comes to those who, who love him, who, who call out to him in their trouble. And this word love uh, in this psalm means to passionately cling to or to cleave to God. I think, I'm not sure, but I think it's the same word that's used in Genesis when a husband will cling, will cleave to his wife. It's about approach of the heart. And they call out to God in their need uh, of, of protection, in their need of salvation. And it's in this environment that God comes and delivers them. God's promise is not to take trouble away, but to be the greater reality than the trouble. You get that? To be in the trouble with the psalmist and in that environment, honor the psalmist and lift up and deliver the psalmist in there. It's got nothing to do with our goodness, our strength, our abilities, but about seeing the goodness, the strength and the beauty of God and calling out to that. And seeing it is more desirable, more powerful than any other thing that we could turn to and rest in. And we need to keep this in mind. Uh, we need to keep in mind the experience of life of the psalmist and the actual promise of God in view when we read the middle of this psalm. Because if we don't, we might wrongly think that trusting in God, uh, you know, as we read through this middle section, should equate to life just being fine. That, that, that it should, if we're trusting in God, if we, read it, we should never be sick, never have people uh, you know, blowing up our lives, uh, never succumbing to spiritual vulnerability, never having rogue pigeons just turn up and, and threaten our way of life. That those who trust God should never encounter any of these things, never encounter trouble. If we read it like that, we will likely come to the conclusion that Job's friends came to. The bad things only happen to bad people who haven't properly trusted in God. That if your world's a mess, if you have suffering and hardship in your life, that you are to blame, perhaps. You need more faith. You need better faith. In fact, it's the quality of your faith that actually determines the quality of your life. In essence, you're saying, I still control things. I'm the one pulling the levers. I'm the one who determines the building of the refuge. It's based in me. And at the end of the book of Job, God speaks like he does in this psalm to clear things up. Job 42.7, after the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken truth about me as my servant Job has. God refutes the idea that good fortune, the absence of suffering, in your, is based in your character. And he upholds the idea that his character is sufficient refuge for those who find themselves facing threats and uncertainty of life. Like even in the Old Testament, that theological horizon is in view. And throughout the middle of this psalm, God... Is constantly being summed up against the great threats and adversities that the ancient worshipper faced. That's that's kind of what's been that's what's going on through the middle here. In verse three, it's God against the traps uh, of the enemy and the deadly pestilence. What do you know? There's no contest there. 
In verses 5 and 6, it's God against the things that terrorize at night and the things that terrorize in the day. God, who we've called upon, is, is here to help us in this. There's no contest there. In verse 7, it's God against the insurmountable odds. There's no contest there. They'll just fall at your sides. In verse 10, it's God against all the evil and God against all the plagues. And this is about as fearful and threatening as it gets for the ancient mind. And none of these things can do a single thing without first answering with God. And so on and so forth throughout the psalm. All these threats are are, are, are pitted against the one who refuges in the presence of God. And it's no contest. All throughout this psalm, God effortlessly is victorious over these things. And your soul is the relational benefactor. It is unharmed. It is untouched. The point is threats to physical life, relational life, spiritual lives, war, sickness, wild animals, rogue pigeons are no contest for those who refuge in God. As you press into God, and not in some abstract kind of theoretical sense, but in prayer, in calling to heart the revealed attributes and known activity of God, which is what the psalmist did at the start of this psalm. Your soul and your faith, which is far more important than your comfort, are unharmed, are untouched, and they stay intact and and, and lead to the salvation of your soul. It's not so much that these threats don't exist in the lives of the worshipper, but what the worshipper covers his soul with, what the worshipper's soul takes refuge in. If it abides and dwells in the shadow and the shelter of the Most High, it takes refuge and finds in God a fortress to trust in, wings to cover him or her from the threats of life, then the divinely intended effect of this text on our souls is to create an unshakable security in God on the soul that is un, un, unshakable in this unstable world. That's the song of this psalm. That's the song in the storm, if you like. You know, the devil in Matthew 4, 5 tried to get Jesus to interpret this psalm as saying the protection of God means that there should be no suffering or harm for those he loves. If that's true of your everyday kind of the run-of-the-mill believer, it must be true of, of, of for you, his beloved son, in whom he's well pleased, right? Like, like if, God's not, if, if we interpret this psalm just on the surface. So if God keeps promises to those he loves, you should be able to throw yourself off the pinnacle of this temple and God's angels, they'll just come and place you on the ground. Your toe won't be stubbed, Yeah. And all the commentators agree that Satan is trying to get Jesus not to walk the path of suffering. How could there be suffering in the life of the Son of God? How could there be suffering in the lives of Christians? Yeah? I can get you the kingdoms of the world without suffering. And Jesus refutes this interpretation of the psalm. Suffering, hardships, trials are not the absence of God's care, nor the evidence of his inability to care or his inability to keep his promises, but rather they are in the environments to encounter and experience his care. They are the places where rest and peace in God create the deepest expressions of worship 
and gratitude as God meets us in these landscapes. The psalmists call on the name of God as seen in his saving acts to fortify their hearts and find comfort. God, who, who led Israel out of Egypt and through the wilderness, the God of Moses, the God who delivered David against uh, the, all of Israel's enemies. He is the God who dwells with his people in their troubles and he applies his promise and his power to the welfare of their souls. We have the added benefit of seeing the full measure of God's promise to be with us in trouble in the life of Jesus. In Jesus, this is God entering into our uncertain, anxiety-filled world to give us a concrete invitation to take refuge in his provision. And Jesus demonstrates the scope of his refuge as he disarms the threats to our lives, you know, the, the physical threats, spiritual threats, health threats, relationships, all of this we see in the life of Jesus, the, 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 the care and the provision of God. And in Matthew 23, 37, Jesus speaks, he makes this comment this, as he's heading towards Jerusalem, towards the cross. He speaks about how he longs for God's people to see and take refuge in the provision of God. And he speaks of himself as that provision. He speaks of himself as a mother bird, a hen who gathers her chicks under her wings. Jesus references himself with the imagery normally applied to God as a place of refuge. This refuge that Jesus speaks of here is the refuge that he will provide, not, not against uh, you know, illnesses and sicknesses and relational breakdown and all these kind of things. It, now the refuge that Jesus is talking about is the refuge from the judgment of God against sin. For living lives that fail to see God as the ultimate place of rest and security. Here Jesus is saying, I will deal with the one ultimate fear and threat. How do I face God? A holy God. How do I come to him for refuge when I know that I'm part of the problem? I am someone who makes this world a threatening place. I am someone who doesn't seek God all the time. Here Jesus is saying, I am the cover for every time you stepped out of the cover of God, for every time you didn't rest in God, for every time you tried to be your own savior. I am the shield and the rampant. I am the mother hen who gives her life for yours. I will die I will take the danger. I will face the threat that you can't face. I will, I will take away the idea that, that, that can I approach God? Do I deserve it? Can I approach God for protection and care when I just know how jacked up I am? I don't know if you've ever seen a mother hen guard her chicks. My sister has a couple on the go at the moment. When we're up there, we actually got to see them in full flight. She's got one that's, she says it's, um, where's that chook from? Uh, I don't know, Belgium or somewhere. Anyway, it's got some strange, I think it flew in with the pigeon. It's some weird, weird chook. But, but if you try, and Mandy kind of did it for a bit of a joke. She goes, hey, try and, try and get those eggs out under that chook and you know, you go near this chook and it's up. It's going gonna, it's gonna to rip you to shreds uh, with its feathers. 
It will not let anyone near those eggs. And, and it's literally a fight to the death. This, she will not budge. She will not move. Come at her with a rake, a shovel, uh, the dog, the lawnmower, hose fire, you name it. It's literally a case of over her dead body. Do you get to these chickens, to these eggs? This is the picture that Jesus has in mind. As the judgment of God rained down on him for our sin, it should have landed on us. But he stays. He doesn't move from the cross. He stays in the place of ultimate threat. Says that we can come to the place of ultimate rest. With his death and resurrection, Jesus dismantles the last great threat to our souls that can separate us from God, that can keep us out of his rest, that can keep us away from his comfort, the penalty of sin. And he invites us now in his name, in his great and mighty acts, to come and enjoy the presence of God that he enjoys, that he has as he sits with the Father in heaven. He's inviting us in to that. This is what Paul talks about in Romans 8. What can separate us from the love of God now that Jesus has dealt with the threat of sin? Nothing for those who shelter in the provision, who rest in the shadow of the cross. This is what the psalmist longed for in Psalm 91. This is what it points to and longs for, the ultimate revealing of God's salvation of our souls. The psalmist looked to the great redemptive and saving acts of God by using names like you know, God Most High, Almighty, Lord, Yahweh, you know, God who lives, we look to the cross. And we see that God gave his life for ours, that we might find life with him and enjoy rest and peace with God forever. Now, right now, in this life. We're about to take communion. We're going to end this little time with communion. So as we do, let's pause. As we begin this new year, we're halfway through this month already. Let's just stop and reflect. Give thanks to God that in Jesus, we have a place, a sure and secure place of ultimate refuge. That There is no adversity, nothing that hasn't been faced by him and dealt with him. That we can come into the presence of God anytime we like. Just want you to spend a little bit of time just thinking of it. If you've got your little packs here, just rip that lid off and you can pull out the, the wafer and just eat that in your own time as you just reflect and give thanks to God for his goodness, for his provision. And then in a little while, I'll just call us all to drink together and that, that just kind of that symbolizes our unity that we have uh, our shared experience of grace in Jesus, our shared experience of the refuge uh, that the cross has brought into our lives.
What can separate us from the love of God? What can separate those who shelter in the blood of the cross? Nothing. The strength, the might, the power, the refuge of God displayed on the cross, greater than anything that assaults our soul. There, there we find salvation. We give thanks and we, we drink and we long and we look forward to the day when Jesus returns and makes all fear disappear. And we live in the full reality of the presence and the refuge of God. I mean, God, we thank you that you are a God of refuge, that you are a God who invites us in uh, to your peace, that, 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 that life in refuge with you uh, secures our soul in a way that, 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 that enables us just to deal with all that, that rages around us. We see the, the dramatic uh, depiction of this throughout the psalm. It's, it's as though nothing can assault us, as though nothing can touch us. Our souls so secure uh, in your presence. And we give you thanks for that kind of refuge. And I pray that more and more that this would not just be some kind of idea, that this would be something we press into. This would be the reality of our lives. That we wouldn't just sit around going, I don't, I don't know what that what that feels like and we, and we sit on the outside and we seek to take refuge in our own construction but rather we would let go of those things and run and move toward God because Jesus has opened up that access to the Father. We just pray these things in Jesus' name.